Still figuring out what to buy your teen this holiday season? A new survey revealed that products from Apple, Nike, and Louis Vuitton are topping this year's wish list. Meanwhile, DTC darling Warby Parker has entered into the contact lens category. And this just in, Tupperware is looking to reinvent itself for younger consumers. We've got the scoop and more on today's episode. It's Monday, November 11th, and this is your Retail Rundown. Hi everyone, today we're joined by Laura Heller and Trevor Sumner. Laura is an industry insider and columnist at Forbes. She's also a regular speaker and panel moderator at industry events and conferences like Shop Talk, CES, and Commerce Next, and a former editor of Retail Dive. Trevor is the CEO of Perch, a recognized leader in in-store product engagement marketing, interactive retail displays, and augmented reality. Laura, Trevor, thank you both for joining us today. Our pleasure. Yeah, great to be here. Great to have you. We have some good brands in the mix, Warby Parker, Tupperware, Macy's, Kohl's, and we're going to jump right in to talk a little bit about Louis Vuitton as well. So <laughs> I think parents might need to resize their budgets or rethink their budgets this holiday season. A new survey was just released from Piper Jaffray, and you'll see names like Apple, Nike, Louis Vuitton on teenagers' wish lists. In fact, Apple was the top listed consumer brand for teens this year with AirPods earning the top spot for the most desired product. In addition to that, Nike's number of mentions more than tripled from last year's survey, which is probably a result of their brand sneaker collaborations with dozens of athletes, designers, celebrities, and social influencers. So they're making a wave as well. And the interesting brand that came up is French luxury retailer Louis Vuitton. They took third place among surveyed teens. And so the popularity might be related to Louis Vuitton's campaign for school teens, which targets teen shoppers and also includes sponsored esports events and has been attributed to growing their social media presence by 35 million new followers. So with that, I wanted to pass it to Trevor because nearly half of U.S. consumers are saying they'd consider giving used apparel and handbags as a present this year. And I wanted to know, do you see these teen targeted campaigns like Louis Vuitton is doing actually creating that space for new luxury products or is the resale market going to eat into their sales? I think it's a little bit of both. I think, you know, I take a look at the step back of where we are in America. Clearly there's trends to sustainability and that's where I think the secondary market, I think it's growing from 24 billion to 64 billion in the next 10 years. So it's clearly becoming massive. I think it's likely to erode more into fast fashion in the department stores just because of the price point. But overall, to me, the US is in this interesting state where you know, we have this barbell where the luxury market's doing very well and the discount market's doing well. And that has a lot to do with the hollowing of the middle class. We have to recognize that 12.3% of Americans live under the poverty line. 78% of people are living paycheck to paycheck. So where I do believe secondary market is certainly increasing in popularity because it gives access to new products, I don't know that it's going to be Louboutin, right? I think the buyer is already in that luxury market segment. So do I think Louboutin and others are going to be very effective marketing luxury because we have greater disparity between the rich and the poor as ever, and there's a lot of money to be spent in the top end of the market? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And introducing that to Gen Z and to teens to bug their parents that they want more out of Louboutin, LVMH, et cetera, I think that will be effective. Will the secondary market create a wave of new access? I'm a little bit more skeptical of that. That said, there are a ton of great services out there that are flourishing from you know models like the Real Real or ThreadUp to even rental models like Village Lux and several of the other ones. So 
Again, I focus on the macro level economic issues. And I think for the majority of Americans, it's not going to make a dent. But in the luxury market, you don't necessarily have to make a big dent for you know, to create success. I agree with you on a couple of points. You don't have to make a big dent to have success there. I mean, part of the value of a luxury brand like Louis Vuitton, particularly in something like a handbag, is the rarity, right? The scarcity of the product. So they only make so much in order to retain their value. The secondary market is a really interesting um kind of component to all of this and the rise of the online resale programs are, I think, really fueling the popularity with younger shoppers. You know, if you pair that with the online exposure, the influencers, the social media platforms, millennials in particular are showing a big affinity for these brands, less so Gen Z for some interesting demographic reasons. But I really think that the millennial market, the access to the secondary market and the ease with which they can acquire these products these days on the secondary market is a a pretty great thing for luxury brands. I mean, we see Rebag, which specializes in handbag resale, launching what they call the Claire app. And this tracks the prices of luxury handbags in real time on your phone. That's not a product that's being targeted to boomers or even Gen X like myself. Millennials are really sort of in their sweet spot right now. Younger shoppers, Gen Z, much less so. They're they're a little less interested in luxury and a lot more pragmatic. Um, these were kids that grew up during the Great Recession and formed their financial worldview during that. And so mm-hmm. they're going to gravitate towards different things. But I do think that, you know, luxury, the willingness to buy secondhand and by the way, receive gifts from the secondhand market. And I see this firsthand with the millennial in our household who just is over the moon with her Louis Vuitton that she got (laughs) from a consignment shop. Yeah. I think the other interesting trend I would add to this is just around personalization and scarcity marketing. I think one of the reasons you, you mentioned Nike from a brand perspective, they've done a tremendous job with their drops on their sneakers app on Thursdays, Fridays, and Saturdays with very limited edition touch sneakers that are specific sizes and styles that are hard to find. And so because that scarcity, people pick them up and then they put them on the secondary market as such as StockX and other places. And, you know, we're certainly seeing that kind of throughout in the kind of personalization being a very big trend. And so what you have is limited access. It's no longer mass market, which means that in order to get your hands on it, you know, you have to get a little bit creative about the different sources and see the things that are on the real real or StockX or other different places. And, you know, a whole secondary market industry has come about because of that, because of that scarcity marketing as middlemen and resellers, that's different than traditional retail. So I think part of what's driving that market awareness or even kind of those trends as a team are, I want the personal one. I want these specific LeBrons. So, you know, you really can't just go to Macy's or, you know, even to Nike, you have to find them on the secondary market. So it's an exciting time to think of that, that connection to the product as a more personal one. I think the collaborations are really important, especially for Nike, you know, and that does appeal to the Gen Z shopper, the younger shopper, and it's a more accessible price point. And there's a lot of availability for that age group and for the parents in terms of holiday gift giving. One thing that was I was struck by when we were talking about these brands and their popularity for the holidays, what do all of them have in common? There's no Amazon distribution point for them. Mm-hmm. Nike just pulled their products from the Amazon platform. 
Louis Vuitton is not selling there and, ha- and continues to fight a battle over fakes and that availability in online marketplaces. And I think that, you know, that's a pretty interesting thing. And I'm curious to see how it's going to play out in the holiday numbers. I mean, just it's just three brands. Let's not get carried away and think that Amazon's not going to have a great holiday. But when we see these trends and we see the effort that the brands have put into building their brands and where it's going, I think that this is sort of a a result of that. Absolutely. And I love the comments you both made about scarcity marketing, because it seems like this is a really impactful tactic for personalization and one we might not have seen in the past with a brand like Nike necessarily. I think uh, the scarcity marketing has been used by luxury brands, but now we're seeing Nike and I wonder, you know, if other brands will start to pick up on this that we wouldn't expect. Yeah. And I think traditionally it's been used to driven margin on products. Now it's being driven to create customer loyalty and community, which is extraordinarily powerful. It has a lot to do with identity. I mean, I would even argue that the reason that the new AirPods are so successful is that they're a slightly different shape than the old AirPods. A lot of (laughs) Apple's marketing is about identity. When they did the iPods originally, it wasn't about the feeds and speeds. It was about people who had white headphone cords and were dancing. Similarly, everybody wants the new AirPod, not because it's got noise cancellation, although I work in an open office and certainly could use it. And I'm excited about that, but I'm a fanboy. I want to have the new AirPods. I want people to know I have the new AirPods. It is a kind of identity service. And so this is how we express ourselves. Fashion is a, a form of artistic expression and identity. And so the scarcity marketing tactic and really plugging into identity uh, is kind of critical, not just to build margins and profitability, which these companies have done very well, but also to build communities that can then be monetized so that you see these kind of brand feedback loops about why these brands themselves are so valuable. Certainly. And that, I think, drives back to Laura's point about none of these brands, and I know it's just this one survey, but none are on the um, (laughs) Amazon platform. And Amazon's been criticized a little bit for the fact that they don't offer a lot of brand equity opportunities for sellers there. So really great points from both of you. I'm going to hop on to the next topic. We'll dive into Warby Parker. They announced some big news just uh, last week, and they're launching its first line of daily contacts called Scout. So this is a three-month supply of lenses. They are costing $110, and they come in innovative, space-saving flat packs that are sustainable. They use 80% less packaging than other leading lenses. So customers can go get fitted for lenses in select stores where the brand has a lot of optometrists. In many stores, they've tripled the number of optometrists. And co-founder and co-CEO Dave Gilboa told the press that they're really excited to be a one-stop shop. And he cited that nearly half of their customers already wear contacts in addition to the glasses they purchased from Warby Parker. So Laura, I wanted to pass it on to you. Is Warby Parker's venture into contact lenses the next natural step for the brand? And will this expansion get them to greater profitability? Or do you think there's too much competition from literally the dozens of other internet contact lens sellers? You know, it's absolutely the next step. How successful it will be remains to be seen. I mean, this is a logical next step. It's a surprise that they hadn't done it sooner. It's Mm -hmm. not unlike the strategy that Walmart and Target have. You know, you go in by your laundry detergent and you come out with a new coat or a TV or a new bedding, right? So, you know, you go in to try an Warby Parker frame, you realize they have contact lenses. It's the replenishment model, the consumables that they get. And so that's a great business for them to tap into. What they're offering that's differentiated besides the packaging is unclear. And so Mm -hmm. 
how big of a foothold they can get into the market is a real question mark. I mean, I was a little surprised, one, that they hadn't done it earlier, and two, that they were now not so much of a leader in it. They're not really disrupting it. They're following. And that's a bit of a concern if you're looking at the brand long term. Yeah. Uh, well, look, I think this does make sense. As you mentioned, about 40, 40 to 50 percent of their customers wore contact lenses. And if you actually look at the contact lens market, it is the fastest growing segment in the eyewear industry, right? So it's about a $5 billion market growing at 12%. So it's the fastest in that segment and about a third of the prescription market. So ignoring that market, I think, was mistaken. Like you said, seems a little late comparatively. So I think part of this is looking at enterprise value. So recurring revenue streams are valued at somewhere between 6 and 10x revenues, whereas one-time revenues are 1 to 2x. So unlocking a regular stream and point of contact is pretty critical, not just because it's a predictable stream of revenue and orders, but also because you get that frequent touch point of the client. And that's why a lot of the industry is fighting over grocery right now. It's because everybody goes mm-hmm. to the grocery store once, two, three times a week. So if you have that touch point, if you have that data, you're in a remarkably powerful position. So I think this certainly makes a lot of sense. What I like about Warby Parker is their branding, their connection to the customer, the way they look at personalization. That's early feedback is that Scout does an admiral job in wearability of the contacts, which can be difficult. You know, really minor defects can cause quite a bit of eye irritation. It's, this mm-hmm. is my understanding. I have I'm lucky enough to have good vision and not have to mm-hmm. deal with a lot of that. But I also think that Warby Parker will compete with the online only guys with, through the power of stores where we're seeing direct to consumer is very powerful, the kind of moving to stores, whether it's, you know, Warby Parker, who actually sells more eyeglasses in store than they do online, or you see Casper, Madison Reed, all these direct to consumer brands who are now opening stores because they need that touch point with the customer. I think that provides Warby Parker a definitive or defensible position against the online only guys. Now, the question you asked is, well, how do you go against Target and Walmart and some of these other guys who are increasingly looking at their own private label brands and services. And as they're starting to integrate health more vertically kind of integrated into their stores and their service footprint, I think it'll be interesting to see whether this is a, where they fit in that kind of luxury personalization play or whether the value is really, if you have to buy that many contact lenses and on a regular basis, are you just looking for the cheapest option that doesn't irritate your eyes? In which case, a Target, a Walmart may have some advantages in mass market consumerism. Yeah. I mean, there's no obvious play here where a consumer would be like, I'm wearing Warby Parker contact lenses. Nobody can see them. They're not identifiable to the public. So it has to be a good value. It has to be a good product and it has to have an element that makes the shopper feel good about what they're buying. And maybe that's where the packaging innovation comes into play, right? And at the very least, that's something that would be visible if you were poking through somebody's medicine cabinet. Um, (laughs) Not saying that I do, but it's... um, might look kind of cool on a countertop. But, you know, it really, it's a nice component to their business. It's pretty necessary to growing revenue and keeping that contact with the customer, as Trevor points out. And also in terms of driving traffic to their stores, as they continue to build out their retail network, that becomes even more critical. As they're adding optometrists, you know, to have people coming in and visiting, you walk past all the glasses displays, optometrists in the back of the store, all of those things are very similar to, again, a mass merchant, like you, where do they put the milk in the back of the store? get you to go past everything else. Mm -hmm. I do wonder, because they do have a really 
great brand loyalty uh, in physical stores that, as Trevor mentioned, bring in more revenue than their online model. Mm-hmm. But you know, it's if they already have customers who are wearing contacts and they're already on probably a subscription with another service provider. So I just wonder because of the lack of visibility, no pun intended, with the uh, contacts not being branded, Warby Parker, is the switching cost going to make sense for consumers and how quickly will they get on board? Big question, no answers. The acquisition costs here could be higher than they expect and could sort of eat in at least in the startup phase of this. It's going to be interesting to see what kind of promotions they'll have to run or will they run? Or Mm -hmm. is the brand strong enough just to fuel this on its own? Certainly. You both had really good points on that. And I'm jumping into our next brand, which is not the sexiest, but it uh, it's pretty interesting. So Tupperware has a new holiday pop-up and it's not your grandma's Tupperware party. They launched an interactive holiday pop-up in the Soho neighborhood of New York last week. And it features Instagrammable installations and product demos. And this comes with a slew of other brands that also launched pop-ups. We hear about them all the time. So earlier this month, Kohl's launched their interactive pop-up in conjunction with Snapchat. That was at a nearby Soho location. And Macy's unveiled its winterized version of Story. So these pop-ups are coming during the holiday season. And all these brands have seen you know, a hit in sales. So I wanted to pass this to Trevor and just ask, although sales are top of mind right now during this year's shortened shopping season, are pop-ups the right tool to help struggling legacy brands and, and brands like Tupperware attract new customers in 2020? Uh, like, like any tool in your toolbox, they can be used very well or, or very badly. We see people spending a lot of money on pop-ups and the argument against is, what is the value that you're getting after, you know, kind of a limited period of time? If you look at the cost of production, fabrication, design, getting mm-hmm. the space, putting it all together to only tear it down, you know, a month or two later, it certainly questions as to what the value you get out of it. Certainly, there are models like Story, Macy's, which effectively is a new theme every two months. And it creates the sense that there's a new reason to come into the store on a regular basis because there's a new theme. And whether it's show fields or neighborhood goods or others who are very often kind of changing the dynamic and the narrative, I think that's great. But part of this, I feel a little bit has jumped the shark, right? This notion of Instagrammable moments. And will it work? Sure. But we're seeing that getting people to engage with these wonderful tiny little rooms that are upside down or little chairs (laughs) or things that I want to just go in and take a funny picture actually don't get me to engage with the products very deeply, right? And so I think where this becomes more powerful is in this notion of product engagement marketing and how you leverage these things to truly educate customers, get them to engage with products in a deeper way and build that brand. And so when I look at the success, it's really, again, about community building, brand building, and product education. And I think way too many people are caught with, hey, let's just do a flower wall that looks really beautiful so that we get a bunch of people to take pictures or those type of things. I think it needs to be more sophisticated. I think it's great test for direct-to-consumer brands to start interacting with physical retail and understanding what their customers want and test merchandising before they make bigger commitments. But just doing a pop-up for pop-up's sake, sure, maybe during the holidays, but I tend to think that if you spent that money actually fixing your retail experience, that probably has a higher ROI for the future. Yeah, listen, I think it's going to take a lot more than a pop-up with Instagram aspirations to help Tupperware. This is not a great brand story for them. This is a company that is, their stock's at a 52-week low. Their CEO just abruptly left after less than a year 
the job. A pop-up isn't a great thing for Tupperware. It's not going to help them that much other than just getting some free marketing when people stop in to take pictures. I think it's gotten great headlines. People are kind of excited about it, but does that translate to some kind of bigger marketing initiative or a turn in Tupperware's fortunes? I'm pretty skeptical about that. I would challenge you there as to, you know, what's the value of their media, right? They have a Soho location. They spend a ton of money. Mm-hmm. And when you search for Tupperware pop-up, the number one article is from Plastics Today. Uh, and then, <laughs> then you've got Home World Business. There's no tier one, right? And, and I think that's where, like, this was novel three, four years ago. But like you said, it's Tupperware. It's hard to get excited about that unless you do something really groundbreaking. And I feel like if you look at it, they've clearly spent a ton of money on design, on fabrication, making it look really, really nice. I think it fell flat. Agreed. Completely. And I would challenge with the story story at Macy's as well. You know, I see where they're going with it. I understand what they're trying to do. Um, the first iteration or two has been a little lackluster. I don't see a lot of great results from that pop-up. And Kohl's is the same. I mean, they're having a terrible time right now. Mm-hmm. So if we're looking at, again, the common thread between these examples, these are brands that are on the losing end of sales at the moment. Pop-ups have been used effectively. There's no question. And they're going to be, continue to be used effectively. You know, I'm very excited to see what Target and Toys R Us can do together during mm-hmm. the holiday season. And there is still a long runway ahead, I think, for Story to maybe get it right and create a little more enthusiasm and generate more sales opportunities than they have so far. But I just think that it speaks to this rise of what we're seeing in retail, which is retail as a service, which are these companies that can help create the pop-ups and incubate new brand stories inside of retailers, the way Beta is doing with the Toys R Us brand inside of Target, and the way some of the mall operators are experimenting with in terms of using a vacant space to host pop-ups and create that kind of excitement. I think those are two different kinds of stories about the pop-up phenomenon, but both have pros and cons. I wholeheartedly agree with you. I think it's a lot about community. And so when you talk about Toys R Us at Target, Toys R Us still has a wonderful brand. I don't want to grow up. I'm a Toys R Us kid, right? (laughs) Or Kohl's partnering with Snap to build that community or to hijack a community and make it part of their pop-up. I think that's where things become much more interesting and successful. And I think that's what made Story so special when it was a single location with the community around it. And so where Macy's has to move, is for story, not just to be a pop-up that changes every two months, but also a community that they leverage, that they nurture and create a reason. So some of the events that Rachel used to do at their Chelsea store, how do you replicate that at scale so that you have a reason that people come in, that the launch of story is a bigger deal. It's a celebration. It's a part of a local community. And that's what made story special. And that's certainly harder to scale, especially across geographies. But I have a lot of faith in Rachel Sheckman and what the team's doing there. And they're just they're just beginning that journey of building those kind of micro local communities. Certainly. And as Laura mentioned, it's reflective of the larger evolution as retail as a service. And I think, you know, someone on the show the other day said when you have a pop-up, you're either driving sales or you're driving engagement. When retailers try to do both, that's when it fails. Do you guys agree with that? I mean, listen, retail is a business that sells goods and services. I think that if you're not thinking about how that translates into sales, you're probably behind the curve. 
one way to do that is to consider what that pop-up is doing for your business. Is it free marketing? Okay, great. That's one avenue to monetize that or to attach a dollar value to it in terms of your operational expenses. But what are you doing with the information? Are you learning from that experience inside of your own company? Are you capturing customer data? Are you seeing what products people are interacting with inside that environment? If you've got young shoppers coming into a Tupperware store, are they just doing it to take pictures? Are they making fun of things? Are they interacting (laughs) with things? Are they giving you feedback? positive feedback and are you taking that iterating new products or new marketing ploys to go along with that because it really is all about taking the data and then turning that around in some way so it's sales it's monetization it's return on investment be it what it will it is not just a creative effort for the sake of a creative effort it can't be part of the challenge in retail is these very broad-based words like experience engagement How do you measure these things? I think often it's an umbrella to cover for things that really weren't actually successful. We believe that engagement for engagement's sake doesn't necessarily make sense. You can bring a bunch of people into your store to do yoga classes, but they've never looked at the products. If they never, the engagement's not focused at the product level, then what are we doing here, right? What is the purpose of this? All of these techniques in the end are to develop either a relationship with the customer that leads to sales or sales directly. And so whether it's, you know, data acquisition, whether it's feedback on merchandising and marketing, or whether it's sales directly, at the end of the day, it's about marketing the products and understanding why that brand and those sets of products are the place that you want to go and the place you want to buy. So I'm always wary of people who say, oh, we drove a ton of engagement. It reminds me of kind of back in the early days of advertising, if that's like five, 10 years ago, (laughs) uh, online of you know, people measuring success by their cost per impression or their share of voice or these metrics that didn't really mean anything when you absolutely could measure cost per clicks and cost per acquisition and end up sales. Anybody who came to you and said, hey, we're measuring this campaign on CPM, immediately you just stopped the meeting, right? Mm -hmm. Similarly, I think, oh, it's great at engagement. It's like, okay, maybe you know? <laughs> right, right. It reminds me of the saying, I think it's, uh, if it's not measured, it's not managed. Correct. Peter and retail Drucker. is about sales. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And it's something that we might see new KPIs for in the future for how retailers are measuring in-store engagement, especially between the customers and the products and the salespeople. So a lot of really great things. And Laura and Trevor, I really appreciated you guys coming on the rundown today. A lot of good stuff. And I can't wait to have you on the show again. Awesome. Thanks Thanks for having us. And one last note, this is for our listeners who represent a retailer or a brand. If you would like to join a small panel of executives at our upcoming Rethink Retail Dinner in New York City this January, that's at the same time as NRF's big show, please reach out to me at julia at rethink.industries for more information or to be considered. I encourage you to apply and note that spots are limited. Thank you for listening to the Rethink Retail podcast. That's this week's Retail Rundown. Don't forget to join us next week for another episode. And if you're interested in being a guest on the show, apply at rethink.industries slash podcast guest. That's rethink.industries slash podcast guest. Follow us on Twitter at rethink underscore retail and show some love by subscribing, reviewing on iTunes podcast app. Until next time.